Amen. Let's pray together to our Lord and Savior in whom we stand. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we have a firm foundation in your word, and we thank you that it is in Christ alone in which we stand, that his death has accomplished life for all those whom you have called, whom you have redeemed for yourself, and who have repented and believed. We thank you for your grace to us, and I pray that today your grace would be overbounding to us through your word, and that your spirit would minister to your people. Lord, we want to see you more and more clearly each and every day, and I pray that you would be ministering your word, and that we would be tender and receptive to hear your truth. We pray this all in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. This morning, we get the privilege to look into God's word together. And I'm excited to get to do that with you. This text that we're going to look at this morning has impacted me personally this week. And it has really transformed and changed my heart and how I view God. I'm really excited to get to look into it with you. So if you'll open your Bibles with me, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2. We've been studying through the book of Philippians and we're halfway through the second chapter and we're about a year and a half in in regards to time scale. So just to set expectations... Probably have two and a half years left. <laughs> but as we've seen in our study through Philippians, Paul's theme is that Christians are called to joyfully serve Christ. Paul's shown this in both his prayer for these fellow saints and his update from his imprisonment, but he's also shown it in his exhortation to encourage this church to live in unity for the glory of God. Paul would continue in verse 5 of chapter 2 to call these partners in the gospel to have the mind of Christ. To convey this mindset, Paul beautifully describes both the steep condescension and the supreme exaltation of Christ in verses 6 through 11. And what is revealed in the model of Christ is the mindset of a humble servant. A mindset that is manifested with hands and feet in a life of faithful obedience to God. Look at Philippians 2, verse 8. It says, And being found in human form, Christ humbled himself. It says how he did this. He says, By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul would continue in verses 9 through 11 to show the results of Christ's faithful obedience. God the Father exalted him above all, and one day every knee will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. And all of this, he concludes in verse 11, is to the glory of God the Father. The Lord Jesus Christ faithfully obeyed for the glory of the Father. And Paul moves forward in verses 12 and 13 to say to you, as a servant of Christ, 
You are called to faithful obedience for the glory of God. Look with me as I read from Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Our call as Christians is to a lifetime of obedience. And the therefore that starts our text this morning points us back to the preceding verses to connect these sections together. As if to say, Christ has become a servant and faithfully obeyed. So you too must obey just as he did. Paul started by instructing these believers in verse 5 to think humbly as Christ did. And he says in our text this morning, therefore you ought to live humbly as Christ did. Right thinking is always meant to be connected with right living. And according to the example we have in Christ, the primary responsibility of a humble servant is to faithfully obey their master. The main point that Paul makes in our text this morning is that servants of Christ strive for faithful obedience. Servants of Christ ought to strive for faithful obedience. If you have surrendered to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you will strive to faithfully obey him. Jesus said it plainly in John 14, 15. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Paul would decisively declare this truth again in 2 Corinthians 5, 14, and 15. He says, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, the one who died for their sake and was raised. We are not saved to live for ourselves. We're saved to live for Christ. Our life of obedience is not done out of some sort of expectation of favor from Christ, but our expression of faith in Christ. The life of a believer is meant to look like Jesus Christ, to display the glory of our Savior by living humbly as servants who strive for faithful obedience. For those Christians listening this morning, our response to this theme, this truth that we find in Scripture is often summarized like this. Amen. Oh, man. It feels like that. There's this moment where you see this truth in God's word and you're just delighted and elated and just all about it and then you recognize, oh, man, I, I don't look like that faithful, obedient servant that I want to. And I think we're genuinely excited and eager to live for our Lord, but then when we sin, discouragement sets in. We feel like a failure. We wonder why fighting sin is so hard And we can even get so low to think, why even try? Then we come to a text like this. And we can be tempted to think, well, if God wanted me to have victory over my sin, he would make it happen and stop me from sinning. But that sounds like Adam in the garden, where we blame God. 
Or others could wrongly conclude, I just need to look inside myself and work really hard and then God will be happy with me when I just pick myself up by my bootstraps. All of this really that we experience in our Christian life leads us to ask the question, what does it look like to rightly strive for faithful obedience? How can we combat the lies that often derail us from striving to faithfully obey Christ? Paul proceeds to address these believers in verse 12 as beloved, he says. He desires to encourage them in their striving for faithful obedience. It's as though through written word, he reaches his arm around their shoulders to lovingly spur them on in the marathon of obedient living for Christ. And as God's inspired word, we too are to find great support and strengthening in our call to strive for faithful obedience as servants of Jesus Christ. In our text this morning, Paul lays out four encouragements in striving for faithful obedience. The first of which we read in verse 12. Look with me again as I read. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The first encouragement we find is that striving for faithful obedience has a history. Striving for faithful obedience has a history. Paul, in transition to make his main point, starts by making a comparative statement. He says at the beginning of verse 12, as you have done, so now keep doing. And in stating this, this way, he reminds them of their past obedience as an encouragement toward continued obedience. I think we can, we can understand this truth and we convey the same sort of care when we speak truth to those whom we are seeking to encourage. How many times have you, in offering loving correction, started out with a word of affirmation? Maybe you'll actually, instead of directly correcting something, you find a way to actually commend something that they're doing right to encourage them in further growth, saying, yes, that's right, keep doing that. That's what Paul is doing here. And as we seek to strive for faithful obedience, we too ought to be encouraged to look back. We need to be reminded how God has grown us in living, obedient life for Christ. Whether you have been saved for 50 years or 50 seconds, there is history. It all started at the beginning. And we need to remember that we could do nothing at all to earn or merit our salvation, but salvation is the work of God from start to finish. It starts when God sovereignly makes you alive to see his holiness, to see your sinfulness, and to see his provision of a savior in Jesus Christ alone. And it's at that point where you are made alive that you respond to the call and command of the gospel. The command is repent and believe, and you respond in obedience. You turn from your sin and you trust in Christ alone. And this sets you on a track of a lifetime of obedience to Christ. But not only can we look back at the start, we should be able to look and see a history of God's work in sanctification in the life of his children. According to scripture, believers are saved, past tense, are being saved, present tense, and will be saved, future tense. 
And although we have been freed from both the power and penalty of sin, the presence of sin remains until we see the Lord face to face. I like how one theologian wrote this summary about the believer's sanctification. He said, Christians are to become what they already are and one day will be fully. But this idea of the progressive nature of our experience of salvation does not mean there is some sort of insecurity or uncertainty with our salvation. And the reason is really simple yet profound. The truth is God is faithful. Paul said this earlier in chapter 1, verse 6. He said, And I am sure of this, that he, being God, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. If you are a believer, you can be sure that God is faithfully at work in your life. Too often as believers, we neglect to recognize how much growth there has been in striving for faithful obedience. We tend to focus on failures and neglect to rejoice both in godly repentance and in God-honoring victory. We should be able to look back over our years as believers and see growth in obedience to God's word. And we ought to encourage one another as we observe growth in others that are striving for faithful obedience to Christ. Do you ever reflect back and see how God has been growing you in your personal walk? Do you actually observe and affirm growth that you see in your fellow believers? I think it's important that we remember that we ought to be encouraged at what God has done, and that that ought to encourage us in our fight to continue striving for faithful obedience. But not only do we see the encouragement that those striving Uh, for faith the obedience have a history but we also see a second encouragement in verse 12 he continues saying so now not only as in my presence but much more in my absence the second encouragement we find is that striving for faithful obedience does not depend on a human audience it does not depend on a human audience In this letter, Paul repeatedly expresses his longing to be with the Philippians again. In chapter 1, verse 26, he mentions coming to them again. And right after, in verse 27, he made a similar statement to our text this morning. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm. Paul is saying, Don't wait around for me. Your obedience is not to me or to any man. Your obedience is to God. Therefore, what you should do is you should get after it. You can see throughout the letter and the recorded history and acts of Paul and this Philippian believer's relationship that there was really a strong bond of love between them. But Paul wanted to make clear that their striving and obedience should not stop while Paul wasn't around. Rather, it should be abounding, he says, even more. This is encouraging because we need to be reminded that our obedience is not for any one man's approval. We don't seek an affirmation from man, but our obedience is to God alone. 
I think we can tend to slip into thinking that as long as everyone is happy with me, then I'm doing the, quote, right thing. But biblical obedience requires being right in God's eyes. Are there ways that your pursuit of obedience is wrongly motivated by man's approval? Do your emotions soar or sink based on the opinions of an individual in your life that you look up to? Or do you evaluate those opinions rather based on God's word? Do you find it hard to strive for faithful obedience when you know that no one's watching? This can look like being diligent in the workplace, being faithful to work hard and be diligent just to to honor the Lord in the way that you are diligent with your work that God has called you to in a workplace. When no one's watching, what does your work time look like? When no one's watching, how is self-control at play in your life? When there's anger, do you just throw a temper tantrum when no one's around because you can get away with it? Or do you seek to say, no, the Lord calls me to self-control? How about purity? When no one's watching, where does your mind go? Are you seeking to honor the Lord in your private time? I want you to contemplate the next statement and see how your heart just responds to it. One of the most personally encouraging moments for a believer is when they obey God and no human being ever knows it. The reason that that is an encouraging moment personally is because God knows it. God saw it, and whether it be an external action or an internal choice, you know the reason. The reason that this obedience occurred was because you love God and not yourself. But if your heart bristles at the thought, you need to be reminded that your obedience should be aimed at pleasing God, not seeking to merely please man. Your striving for faithful obedience does not depend on a human audience. But Paul continues to assert the primary instruction in this passage in verse 12. He says, So now, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The third encouragement that Paul gives is that striving for faithful obedience requires serious effort. Striving for faithful obedience as a servant of Christ requires serious effort. All these statements have been leading up to this imperative that Paul calls believers to do. He says, work out your salvation. You've likely heard this phrase quoted and even incorrectly interpreted to mean that in some way we are supposed to contribute to our own salvation. But this command is stated within a context that helps us understand what the author originally meant. In this letter, Paul is writing to these fellow Christians and he's not addressing the issue of how people get saved, but rather he says, this is how saved people live out the salvation they have. This is further supported by Paul's word choice. He didn't say here, notice in your scriptures, he doesn't say work out, or excuse me, he does say that. Sorry, he didn't say, caught you. 
He didn't say work at your salvation. He didn't say work on your salvation. And he definitely didn't say work for your salvation. What he does say is work out your salvation. This phrase is meant to communicate that we are to toil and strain and strive to live outwardly consistent with the already internal reality. Paul is saying that servants of Christ are characterized by striving for faithful obedience to Christ. Those who are saved will labor to live out their salvation, and they do so, he says, with fear and trembling. The author of Hebrews similarly writes in Hebrews 12, 28 and 29, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The emphasis in both these texts are making it for us to understand as believers that we are to have a sober and serious effort toward obedience because it is to a holy God. Maybe you're thinking this morning, okay, I see that in the text, but you said that was an encouragement. How is that supposed to be like encouraging? That sounds fearful and trembling and scary. Let me ask you, have you ever felt like obedience is hard work? It's because it is. It is. Too often we want the easy option. We actually tend to view hard work as an indicator that I'm probably doing something wrong because this is way too difficult. For an example, we tend to strive to want chiseled abs or sort of horseshoe cut triceps, right? But we don't want to give up our twice a day dessert and get up early to go to the gym. It takes effort. And friends, we want to see growth in obedience and we tend to want it apart from any serious effort. Let me be clear though, I'm not trying to make anyone insecure but I am aiming to make you uneasy about passivity. Living a sort of laissez-faire approach toward obedience is not living for Christ, it's living for self. If you are experiencing a repeated habitual sin in an area of your life, it could be because your effort level toward sanctification is really that of a sloth. You lack godly zeal, which only comes from a a proper fear of God. You think that this passage says, sit back and don't worry about living according to your salvation. God will do it for you, but that's not what scripture says. Your effort is one of God's ordained means by which he brings about growth in godliness. Paul would personally model this in his, this sort of serious effort toward faithful obedience in uh, chapter three. Flip over chapter three, verse 13 and 14. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal of the pri- for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 
continuous hard work and serious effort does not mean there's something wrong with you. On the contrary, it's an indication that there is real life in you. So be encouraged as you continue to obey with serious effort, as you work out your salvation with fear and trembling before God. But Paul concludes his encouragement to these co-laborers in the gospel by answering why it is they should strive to obey with fear and trembling. Look with me at verse 13. He continues, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's here in verse 13 that we find the fourth and final encouragement. That striving for faithful obedience requires sovereign empowerment. Striving for faithful obedience requires sovereign empowerment. Paul proceeds to give a reason why we should be sobered in our striving for obedience. He says it's for this reason, because it is God who works in you. This, friends, is the God who spoke the universe and sustains it by the power of his word. The one who parted the Red Sea so that his people could walk across on dry ground. The one who tore down Jericho's walls. The one who shut the mouths of lions. And the God who sent his son to die on a cross for sinners and raised him up from the dead. And exalted him as we saw in 9 through 11. And gave him the name that is above every name so that every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And all of this was to the glory of this God. This almighty God who is supremely sovereign is powerfully at work in you. That is why we fear and tremble. It's because we know who this God is and his gracious power towards his children. But not only do we know who God is, but what God does. Our sovereign Lord, he says, works in us. Paul uses a different word here to describe God's action. Where we are called to work out, God is the one who is working in Paul's communicating this rock-solid fact. It is God who energizes and empowers believers to obey his commands. This would have been the most encouraging news of all. We know that we are not left to ourselves to muster up obedience. But our sovereign master is powerfully energizing both the will and the work, both the desire and the act. Paul did not say that God empowers just the act, but he also says the desire. Too often we are content with external behavior modification. But friends, biblical obedience is fundamentally an issue of the heart. God's miraculous work of transforming our affections is essential if we are to strive for faithful obedience. But God also sovereignly empowers the work According to our text, God works in us to work, and we are to work out that work. I don't know about you, but that just sounds like a lot of work. In reading a text like this, we might be asking, who is really doing what? 
We might wrongly conclude that God does his half of the work and I do the other half. But the passage doesn't say that. The encouragement Paul intends to convey is centered on the truth that God's empowerment is over every aspect of your obedience. John Murray is helpful in his clarification on this point. He says, God's working in us is not suspended because we work, nor are working suspended because God works. It says God works in us and we also work. But the relation is that because God works, we work. All working out of salvation on our part is an effect of God working in us. You and I are called to strive for faithful obedience because it is God who sovereignly empowers us for that work. This truth of sovereign empowerment causing serious effort in obedience was emphasized repeatedly to the early church. Ephesians 2.10 says, We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In Colossians 1.29, Paul, in referring to his focused pursuit and seeing fellow believers grow into maturity, pleaded, For this I toil, struggling, he says, with all God's energy that he powerfully works within me. This is God's powerful grace at work in his children. It is not something we can earn, but is what God does because it's in accordance with, as he ends in verse 13, his good pleasure. Do you believe that God desires to sovereignly empower you to strive for faithful obedience? When discouragement seeks to choke out your zeal, you must cry out to God for grace. All the while believing that he delights to give it. Paul would expound upon the endless empowering grace of God in 2 Corinthians 9.8. He writes, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. God's gracious arm is not short towards you. It is always sufficient in all things at all times because God is all you need. And when you doubt it, you must remember the gospel. Romans 8, 32, Paul argues saying, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Friends, there is no greater gift than God's empowering grace. God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. As I was thinking through this truth in my own life, I'm entering a stage as a parent where extracurricular activities is overwhelming. And we're just scratching the surface. But I think through how 
my girls who are interested in trying volleyball or soccer and how much benefit those things can bring. How much effort and energy is enabling them to even be able to do that? My kids can't afford shin guards and cleats and socks. They don't, you know, aren't diligent to wake up early enough and prepare breakfast, and so we do all that. They can't afford the gas. They can't drive the car. They can't even get to where they would need to go without a parent who comes alongside them. And what struck me was having this sort of like growing up flashback that happens when you think about your own parents and your own, your own childhood. And you think about all the times my parents got up early, made me breakfast. They drove me early to school for marching band practice or took me to soccer games across the state. And I really just slept in the car right there because I was tired, or I'm eating a Pop-Tart, not really interested in conversation because I'm not awake yet. But they diligently loved and made a way for me to go to a place that I couldn't on my own. In a very small way, it's not a perfect illustration, but it helped me to grasp the amazing grace and provision that God has given us to be encouraged that God's grace toward us enables and takes us to where we need to go. We can't do it on our own. It's impossible. So don't hear this sermon and think about, I just need to strive for obedience in my own strength. The encouragement in the text would be totally lost. That's terrifying. You can't do it. But friends, when we look at our gracious, powerful God and we recognize what he does for us, in his son, Jesus Christ. We are blown away by his amazing love and grace. How much more should we be encouraged in our striving for faithful obedience? As we look back and see God's personal, empowering grace at work in our lives, the history of it, and then moment by moment, day by day, year after year, He is continuing to faithfully work in us so that we can, as servants of Christ, strive for faithful obedience to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are all-powerful, that your grace is not insufficient, but your word says that it is abounding toward those whom you have called according to your purpose. We thank you that you are merciful and gracious to us. Those who are sinful, those who recognize our own failings, we ask that your grace would continue to be poured out and that we would be encouraged in seeing what you have sovereignly done in changing and calling a people to yourself and that you would continue to help us to see how you are at work sovereignly bringing about holiness and change and transformation in our lives and that your word would be a sounding bell in our ear over and over again, that your words are true, that you are faithful, that you will bring it to completion. I'm reminded, Lord, of your servant Paul who was laboring in prayer over a thorn in the flesh. but you spoke a word of grace to him. 
and you reminded him that your grace is sufficient and that your power is made perfect in our weakness. Pray that our response would be the same, that we would all the more boast more gladly in our weakness so that your power, Lord, would rest upon us. Pray that you would encourage your people to walk in a way that's pleasing in your sight, not because of favor, but because we love you. We're blown away at your grace. We pray all this in our Lord and Savior's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.